G'day folks and welcome. I'm Chris Faber. And I'm TJ Stedman. And you're listening to the Answers to Giant Questions podcast coming to you from sunny Western Australia. We're back and we've got another episode of Ancient Near Eastern Strangeness to explore as we continue our exploration of the first 11 chapters of Genesis, or as the nerds, which uh, definitely Tim is, call it the primeval history. <laughs> this is the Answers to Giant Questions podcast. A show that tackles your questions about the biblical giants, and we are ankle, knee, perhaps even thigh deep in Genesis 2 once again. Mm, as deep as a man's thigh. I saw that written somewhere uh, today, and yeah, tried not to get too visual about it. Uh, very, uh, what's the word? They euphemistic. These these kind of expressions. Anyway. That is right, Chris. We're preparing to introduce the woman to the Garden of Eden narrative. And in a functionally oriented society, you need to see why something's necessary first. They've got to sort of set up a, a situation where there's a need and how are we going to address it? So, so we're going to focus on what the man in our story is actually doing. And we'll begin with our text from Genesis 2 and verses 19 to 20, which... I prepared earlier. The Lord God formed out of the ground every wild animal and every bird of the sky and brought each to the man to see what he would call it. And whatever the man called a living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock, to the birds of the sky and to every wild animal. But for the man, no helper was found corresponding to him. All right. Now, we've looked at the, the name of the Lord God here, Yahweh Elohim, uh, in the past. And we talked about how that's his personal name and title that occurs in contexts where the person he's dealing with has a special job to do. At least that's the pattern of usage that we see throughout the primeval history. And again, we're confronted with the terminology formed out of the ground, which we had before when we spoke about the creation or the appointment to purpose of this man. This time the phrase is applied to the living creatures of the land. The text is deceptive here because in English we get every wild animal, but the Hebrew tells us that we're dealing with the beasts of the field. And once more, the birds of the sky are brought into the narrative. So these are terrestrial creatures because birds may fly, but they live on the land. The focus of this text in Genesis 2 and 3 is not on cosmology like it was in the first chapter. And this narrative does have a beautiful artistry to it, but we're not reading a poem. So we don't have here the same use of terminology that we got in Genesis 1 with regard to the identity and function of the living creatures. We might have the same terms, but not the same usage. Here, the beasts are not bizarre creatures in liminal spaces acting as chaos agents. Instead, the focus is on the function of the man. Okay, so we haven't got demons and all that kind of stuff in here. Right, yeah, this is a different kind of text, and there's different usage of terms. Uh, but our cosmology will come in handy later as we proceed through the scriptures. So what is actually happening here in this text? Well, the man's going to learn how to be what he is and how to become what he must be if he's going to continue in this position. Uh, for those who came in late, we've been 
talking about how the man has been welcomed into the abode of God, the court of God's divine council on earth. That's basically what Eden is, but the man is not a god. And he needs to come to terms with his own flesh as well as his task as king of the land. Now, I say king not because he's put in power by other men or because he demanded it of them. He wasn't born king. He's king because he was chosen to take that responsibility. And as I said before, it's because he is ordinary that he was chosen. He's just like any of us, simply a speck of dust among millions. And I'm going to keep coming back to that point until you get it, because our culture is obsessed with originality and individuality and standing out. But you said that God forms the animals out of the ground. So is this creation again or more creation or not creation or creation adjacent? What's happening? Well, this isn't a retelling of the origin of animals. I just mentioned the man who was selected from the afar of the Adama, the dust of the ground. The same thing is happening here. God isn't making animals out of dirt. He's choosing examples from the multitude, typical and unremarkable, and he's bringing them before the man. So God is uh, herding cats, to perhaps use an Australian-only expression. Oh, well, you know, actually, I think that's got some, some use outside of Australia, but, uh, yeah, it's kind of fun. Well, you know, someone's got to do it. And why is God doing that? Well, he wants to see what the man will call them. So that makes us think, well, doesn't God know what these animals are? Doesn't he already know what the man will call them? Of course he does. But these are stupid questions. When God inquires, it's never to find out something he doesn't know. God wants you to realize. He wants you to learn. He asks so that you will think about your answer and then perhaps you'll reconsider what you're doing or the attitude you bring to the task. God is watching the man give names to the animals. So why does the king have to do that? If he's the king, can't he get someone else to do that? Why didn't God name the animals already? This just seems like a pointless exercise. Well, as we always say on this show, We've got to get into the ancient Near Eastern mindset and we need to recognise what kingship looks like in the ancient world. The king, as an extension of God's hand, has to do the work that God does, and that means the work of creation. And again, for those who came in late to get a proper understanding of what creation in the Bible really means, you can go back and check out our first season, and in fact we have a whole episode devoted to defining creation biblically. So if you haven't already, you need to go back and listen to that one. And welcome back. Uh, thanks for listening to uh, the Essence to Try Questions podcast. And you're back thigh deep in season two, episode 15. We're talking about kingship as creation. Thigh deep. And now that you know that creation is defined biblically as setting things in order and the assignment of function as God or as God's representative, we can begin to understand what naming the animals is really all about. In the ancient Near East, names were powerful. A name was given by a superior as a pronouncement of destiny upon the recipient of the name. The process of naming then involves the application of wisdom. A part of our approach to studying the Bible here in this podcast is to consider the literary aspects of the textual analysis. So we often think about the role that a particular character plays in a story and we consider how the name of that person relates to their function in the narrative. From that perspective, it would appear that the names of individuals in the text are simply made up by the author as a literary device to convey the meaning of the text. As an example of that, 
we could look at Abram, who was renamed to be Abraham. The meanings of these names are well known. Traditionally, Abram is known as exalted father or high father. Abraham means father of a multitude. And because we know the story of Abram, who becomes Abraham and the father of a multitude, we can look back on Abram as the exalted father. Contextual critics will say, well, that probably wasn't his name at all, but it conveys meaning in the narrative. So it was chosen by the author for obvious reasons. Now, I'm quite sure that Abraham, the Mesopotamian, didn't have a Hebrew name. But again, we're forgetting that this is a functional culture. The name means something. The meanings are expressed in language, and language gets translated from one culture to the next. And so we end up with the name Abraham because of what it means, not because that was the thing you would say to get Abraham's attention. We've got to remember that you actually have a name in your lifetime, not only after you're dead and someone's written your story. Names were given as a pronouncement of destiny, and the person who received the name would endeavour to live up to it if it was a good name given by an honourable superior. What this tells us is that names in scripture are not simply a literary construct invented by the author. Instead, they're a key to understanding the relationship between that person's life as recorded in scripture and the intent of the one who gave them that name. But if a name is going to become a destiny, then it must serve as a statement of function because you cannot become something if you're not doing the thing. Abram was the great father because he did great things and Abraham was the father of a multitude because God blessed him with many children. But the name came first and it was followed by action. It was followed by the enactment of the destiny pronounced when he was named. The fact that he was clearly a Mesopotamian man who obviously would have had a Mesopotamian name that we find translated into Hebrew does not change the circumstances surrounding the giving of the name. It's just the translation. So that's something to keep in mind when you hear people talking about the Bible as literature. It is, of course, a work of literature, but it is also a work of profound truth with deep roots in a real story. In my view, the historicity of the events of Scripture forms part of how the Holy Spirit continues the work of inspiration to this day, guiding us into truth. And of course, Abram's story is special because he gets his name changed. So we can see an instance where God takes an active part in shaping the destiny of this man as he transitions from one stage of life into another. God removes the shame of being the father who has no offspring by giving the promise that he would be the father of a multitude and changes his name accordingly as a guarantee that his destiny has been changed. Incidentally, the insertion of the hey in the name Abraham is fascinating because it's the sound of breath. It's the sound of ruach, the spirit. And here we see a man who has become allegiant to God receiving the spirit of God. Yeah, that's that's pretty cool. Well, let's get back to the man in our story. We don't know his name yet in Genesis 2. And I don't think I've ever heard anyone bring this out in a study of the primeval history before, but there's a really good reason why we don't get the name of the man here. As I've said before, names have power, and there is also power in knowing the names of others, because if you have knowledge of their name, then you can influence them. It was common practice in the ancient Near East for authority figures to have two names, a public name by which they were addressed, and a secret or hidden name that nobody knew but themselves, 
and this was done in order to protect them from evil spirits and to prevent others from manipulating them by use of the name. If nobody knows your secret name, then you cannot be brought under the power of anybody else. You might recognize that motif from its use concerning Jesus Christ in the book of Revelation. And you might recall that when confronted by the demoniac on the shore of the Galilee, Jesus first obtained his name. So is that why the, the man in this story doesn't have a name yet? He's a man of mystery, but his name is not Austin Powers. Groovy baby. Yeah, the man in the garden is not named because the biblical author wants to remind you that you do not have power over him. You cannot claim superiority to him. You cannot influence him and you cannot change the fact that you are represented by him. 1 Corinthians 15, 22 for just as in Adam, all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. But we are not in First Corinthians here, and we don't have the name, so we must submit under the authority of the man. We are subject to whatever destiny will be pronounced for him, and we don't know what that is yet, but the task that has been given is to extend the order of God's creation by participating in the work of dividing and naming and assigning roles and functions. So this is what we see in the text. We see other examples of this elsewhere. King Solomon is probably the best known example in 1 Kings chapter 4, but it's well known throughout the ancient Near East, and well attested in several Mesopotamian texts. Yeah, um, King Solomon, he described all kinds of different animals and even plants, I think. Yeah, yeah. The, the king is often depicted as a gardener and a keeper of animals. Participating in these activities is illustrative of the maintenance of cosmic order. So it's not about the king not having someone to water his plants or something like that. This is about the king being diligent to maintain his kingdom. And naming the animals is an important part of keeping that order by making sure that functions are well delineated and plans are made for the future of all in the kingdom. So why does God want to see what the man is going to name for these animals? Curiosity? Well, <laughs> <laughs> well God is in charge overall. And he has appointed the man in his place. So God watches the man to make sure he's doing his job and to see how well he does it. It's not about making sure that lions get called lions and ostriches get called ostriches and snozberries get called snozberries. We talked earlier about the timing of access to the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And we discussed the possibility that this tree might have become accessible or permissible for the man in due time. So here we have a scenario where God is able to evaluate the man in action and perhaps to see whether he is worthy. God watches our work today and evaluates our deeds. The living creatures receive their names from the man and they are established. It's a very simple statement. Whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. That simple sense of determination evident in the statement is profound because it encapsulates not only identity but function and destiny. This is the man determining his reality. That sounds like a pretty powerful thing that he can do. Can he change reality like Dr. Strange? Well, we've got to be careful not to overreach in our definitions here. The, the man's not changing the course of destiny or altering reality by making these pronouncements. That remains the purview of the creator alone. Instead, what the man can do is he can make judgments. He can observe each living creature and he can describe it. He can talk about what it does and therefore what it is. And he can make reasonable assumptions about how it will behave in the future. 
thus he is able to make a judgment that approximates a pronouncement of destiny. They didn't have the language for it back then, but this is really what we call science today. And if he does well in this task, then perhaps God will allow the man to participate in judgments of greater significance. And as we see proceeding through this text, the man gave names not only to the beasts of the field and the birds of the air, as described in the first part of our reading, but he also goes on to give names to the wild animals as well. The man has demonstrated his ability to perform kingly duties by naming the animals appropriately. He's also learned an important truth. None of these animals are anything like him. And if he's going to find help in his work, then he needs someone just like him to come alongside, corresponding to him. Which means not only his mirror image, but also standing opposite to him and providing an alternative perspective. So the man has learned that there is not another creature on earth like him. So after all this work, he still does not have a helper that corresponds to him. Right. The king, having been exposed to such a wide variety of different living beings, is now more than ever acutely aware of his humanity and its fleshly nature. And he's coming to terms with who he really is. This will prove to be an important key in the recognition of what he needs to come alongside him in order to help him in this work. We've been building toward this for a while now, Chris, but we'll finally get there next week on the Answers to Giant Questions podcast. And that sounds very exciting. So what exactly happens next week then? God rips Adam in half. That sounds very painful. Yeah, right in half, like a toasted cheese sandwich. Stick around, catch us next week. It's going to be fun. By the way... Answers to Giant Questions just made the top 10 in Kindle's list of bestsellers in Angelology. Also ranked number 12 in Christian Bible History and Culture and 16 in Christian Education. That is so awesome. Very well deserved. Um, So what have you got for us now, Tim? Are we going to answer some more giant questions? Uh, Not this time, mate. I thought we'd break things up a bit. Of course, if you're listening at home, don't worry, you can... Certainly continue to send in your questions and we'll address them on the show. Yes, and you can always submit your questions via the website, which is giantanswers.com. been ages since we took a deeper dive beyond the pages of my book answers to giant questions so that's what we're going to do this time for a change and i thought it'd be wise for us to spend a bit of time looking at how to think like an ancient person how to understand scripture on its own terms so what we're going to do now is spend a little time in chapter five of the book that's the chapter which is called the flood versus the immortals specifically We're going to be looking at the section that deals with literary forms. And if you've got the book, you'll find it under the subtitle Concept 3, Literary Forms Guide Their Own Interpretation. It's page 51 if you have it in hard copy. One principle that we need to keep in mind when we read scripture is that words in and of themselves do not have meaning. People have meaning and people give meaning to words by the way that they use them. I'll give you an example. Let's say that it's the 1950s and I want to tell you that I really enjoyed some time that I spent with my friends. I might say that we had a gay old time. 
there's an example of an expression that was perfectly acceptable to use in its time. But nowadays, if you said that, it would mean something very different. Yeah, you might not necessarily uh, say it in front of a crowd of your friends these days. No, now, the word itself didn't change, but the meaning of the word has changed. And that happens because of the way that people use words. By applying a word to a given circumstance and context, we imbue the word with a meaning that fits that context. Despite the way that the use of that same word might change over time in the future, people will always be able to look back and assess the circumstances and the context surrounding the use of the terminology to inform their understanding of its meaning. And that is the method that we need to bring to biblical interpretation. It does no good for us to use modern dictionary meanings for English translations of Hebrew words used in contexts far removed from our own. Sometimes it's not enough to know what a word meant in its context. Sometimes you come across a whole string of words that need to be interpreted as a unit. And you may find that individual word definitions are of no help in giving the complete phrase any meaning. This is what we call idiomatic expression, and it's one of the things that we're going to look at as we go through this portion of the book. But first, we're going to have a look at some other features of literature that need to be kept in mind when we read the Bible, and they are genre and structure. As we go through this, I'm going to be quoting portions of the book and also reading portions of scripture, and I'll break in in between with extra comments and a few notes of my own. Sounds good. Let's dive into it, see how deep we can go. All right. The Flood Account is a poem. It doesn't look anything like modern poetry, though. We generally look for rhyme, rhythm, and meter to indicate that we're reading a poetic work. But ancient writers did not necessarily value the same qualities that we do. What they often looked for in a poem was the development of ideas. This development could take many forms. I'm going to give you an example from the book of Numbers, chapter 16, be reading that from the NIV, which tells of the rebellion of Korah and focuses on the intervention of God in that affair. So this is Numbers 16, verses 29 to 33. If these men die a natural death and suffer the fate of all mankind, then the Lord has not sent me. But if the Lord brings about something totally new, and the earth opens its mouth and swallows them with everything that belongs to them, and they go down alive into the realm of the dead, then you will know that these men have treated the Lord with contempt. As soon as he finished saying all this, the ground under them split apart, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them in their households, and all those associated with Korah, together with their possessions. They went down alive, into the realm of the dead, with everything they owned. The earth closed over them, and they perished, and were gone from the community. Now what we've seen there is actually a poetic structure in three parts, and you could divide them up if you read from verses 29 through the first half of verse 30. So 29 to 30a, if you like, and then from 30b to 32. And then the final section is verse 33. So the first portion anticipates God's judgment. And the second is the moment when God intervenes. And the final part is the resolution of the matter. So what we see here is specific elements of what we call chiasm. 
where each component of the poem is mirrored on either side of the central point. So we have the earth opens its mouth and swallows them with everything that belongs to them. And then they go down alive into the realm of the dead. So this is the setup. And then we have the central uh, the part where it begins to change. The ground under them split apart. The earth opened its mouth and swallowed them. They went down alive into the realm of the dead. With everything they owned, the earth closed over them and they perished and were gone from the community. So it finishes with the closing of the earth, sealing the fate of Korah and his followers. But it's very interesting that we have this idea of God bringing about something totally new. And what happened? What, what was this thing that was new? The land, and therefore the community, was cleansed of the poisonous Korah and his followers. The upheaval of the natural order where the earth literally split apart and then closed up again, was an act of recreation. Now let's look at another chiastic structure. This one's well known. And Genesis 11, which of course we're going to be studying in great depth later in this podcast in due course. We'll have a quick look at it now. And reading from chapter 11, verse 1. And the whole earth was of one language and of one speech. And it came to pass as they journeyed from the east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and they dwelt there. And they said to one another, Go to, let us make brick, and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone, and slime had they for mortar. And they said, Go to, let us build us a city and a tower, whose top may reach unto heaven, and let us make us a name, lest we be scattered abroad upon the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower, which the children of men builded. And the Lord said, Behold, the people is one, and they have all one language, and this they begin to do. And now nothing will be restrained from them, which they have imagined to do. Go to, let us go down, and there confound their language, that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from thence, upon the face of all the earth, and they left off to build the city. Therefore is the name of it called Babel, because the Lord did there confound the language of all the earth, and from thence did the Lord scatter them abroad upon the face of all the earth. All right, so that was obviously the uh, King James there. Uh, Just a a side note on that one, actually. That structure, and I was talking to uh, Derek Gilbert about this the other week, uh, and and you've read it in the book if you've got your own uh, copy of Answers to Giant Questions. That uh, poetic structure that we that we see there, uh, in my view, may have been uh, stripped down from a larger version, which may have originally contained the text from Genesis 10, which talks about Nimrod. You might be thinking, "What are you what are you talking about here? It's, they're separate things." What I'm uh, what I'm proposing is that. If you take the story of Nimrod from Genesis 10, which is verses 8 to 12, and you break that in half, you can put the Babel story in the middle of that, and you actually get a really cohesive overall story that maintains that same poetic structure. Just for, uh, just for giggles, let's, let's do that. 
So I'm going to read Genesis 10, verses 8 to 10, and then the Babel story, and then go back to Genesis 10, for verses 11 and 12. And, uh, yeah, if you've never heard this done before, wait until you see how well this works together. And Cush begat Nimrod. He began to be a mighty one in the earth. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Wherefore it is said, even as Nimrod the mighty hunter before the Lord, and the beginning of his kingdom was Babel, and Erech, and Akkad, and Kalneh, in the land of Shinar. And the whole earth was of one language, and of one speech. And it came to pass as they journeyed from the east, that they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and they dwelt there. And they said to one another, Go to, let us make brick, and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone, and slime had they for mortar. And they said, Go to, let us build us a city and a tower, whose top may reach unto heaven. And let us make us a name, lest we be scattered abroad upon the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of men builded. And the Lord said, Behold, the people is one. And they have all one language. And this they begin to do. And now nothing will be restrained from them, which they have imagined to do. Go to, let us go down and there confound their language, so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from thence upon the face of all the earth, and they left off to build the city. Therefore is the name of it called Babel, because the Lord did there confound the language of all the earth, and from thence did the Lord scatter them abroad upon the face of all the earth. Out of that land went forth Ashur, and built Nineveh, and the city Rehoboth, and Calah, and Rezin between Nineveh and Calah. The same is a great city. So yeah, I thought there was uh, an interesting way to view that uh, that narrative there because uh, it really makes some connections which normally would take a lot of work to uh, to dig up and, and build together. And, and when you put them like that, it just becomes quite obvious and it really just seems to work quite well. Now, getting back to the form, in a chiastic structure, as I mentioned earlier, a story is told by relating a situation in a mirrored form. So the problem is introduced at the beginning, which develops to a central climax. And at this point, something occurs which reverses the situation. And by the end, the problem is resolved. So short chiasms such as these might uh, comprise only a few verses, but sometimes they can take the form of an entire book of scripture. In longer chiasms, each point introduced prior to the central turning point of the story gets addressed in reverse order until the situation is entirely reversed and every part of the problem solved. In the Babel chiasm, there are nine points, assuming we're just looking at the nine verses. The first four create the situation. The fifth verse is the climactic turning point where God intervenes, and the remaining four stanzas bring the situation back to resolution. Each point from the first half is addressed in the second half. As an exercise, uh, if you study the Babel story for yourself, see if you can identify the specific points that are mirrored on either side of the centre and see what happens when you do that with the expanded version that I was talking about with uh, Nimrod's story either side as well. Look for similar words and ideas, and this this will get you prepared for examining other uh, chiasms. And, and one in particular, um, of course, is the, the flood of Noah. So the, the flood account, again, is a, is a big... Uh, chiastic structure and there's a lot going on there uh, i'm not going to take the time to work through that entire uh, narrative because it's quite detailed i haven't really got the 
the time for that. But again, uh, I do explain it in full in the book. And uh, I'm not the only person to comment on these things, of course. You can find resources online that will show you how that structure works. Structure's not uh, everything, though. Uh, in talking about other aspects of literature that we need to consider, we've got to look at particular uh, language which is used to make a particular point. And this is where we're going to start getting back into some cosmology here. So this is interesting stuff. In the middle part of the poetic structure of the flood account, uh, the turning point is the moment in Genesis 8 verse 1 where God remembers Noah. Either side of that we have this opening and closing language associated with the windows of heaven and the fountains of the deep. And we were just looking um, a minute ago at the story of uh, Korah and his rebellion. And in that little passage, again, you have this opening and closing of the earth. So we have the same uh, concept in the flood account, which basically achieves the same effect. If we uh, put the structure aside and just look at the key phrases, we've got this opening and closing. Genesis 7 verse 11, In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on that day all the sources of the vast watery depths burst open floodgates of the sky were open and the rain fell on the earth 40 days and 40 nights then in the middle we've got god remembering noah this is uh, genesis 8 1 and immediately after the sources of the watery depths and the floodgates of the sky were closed and the rain from the sky stopped that's genesis 8 verse 2 so we've got this opening and closing the effect of this opening and closing seems to achieve the purposes of God in restoring order and safeguarding the sanctity of God's people. In describing the bringing of the rain, the author mentions the fountains of the great deep and the windows of heaven, which at first appears to be just a colourful way of describing the rain clouds or maybe subterranean springs opening up from the earth. But a closer examination reveals that this is not the case. Throughout the whole canon of scripture, these terms are always used figuratively. So it's clear that they're not just names for physical objects. It's important to remember this as there's many who hold to the idea that the ancient Israelites really did believe that the vault of the heavens actually was a physical barrier between the sky and the abode of God, which had windows in it so that God could tip the rain in. I would contend that the use of a figurative firmament in Genesis 1 does not necessitate the belief that such a thing was a tangible reality. Ancient people weren't idiots. They knew that rain comes from clouds and that if you climb a mountain, you're not going to bang your head on an invisible ceiling. And given that a passage in the book of Job actually does describe the hydrological cycle accurately, it would appear conclusive that ancient people did not really think that rain was the result of God opening a window in the ceiling of the cosmic snow globe to add more water. If you wanted proof of that, Job 36 verses 27 to 28. For he, that is God, maketh small the drops of water. They pour down rain according to the vapour thereof, which the clouds do drop and distill upon man abundantly. So how are we supposed to understand this language of fountains and windows if we can't take it literally? I would contend that it is much the same as when you say to me, the man upstairs was looking out for me. This is one of my favourite analogies. Now, you and I both know that when you use that expression, the man upstairs... Well, the man upstairs is not real. God is real. We both know that you're referring to God, but there is no man, there are no stairs. 
because I know this expression and what it means, I don't actually believe that there are stairs somewhere and at the top of those stairs I should find a man who's looking out for me. What you and I both believe and what is intended to be communicated is that there is a personal being capable of observing and protecting us who dwells in an inaccessible realm that we cannot reach. That person is God and he is understood to dwell in heaven. Thus, he is the man upstairs, the object behind this phrase. So you can see there how the use of language goes beyond dictionary definitions. You can't look up those words, man or stairs. Or, there's, there's no amount of searching dictionaries is going to help you understand what that phrase means. Okay, so this is a, uh, a cultural idiom and it is, uh, as I said earlier, usage that determines the meaning. Okay, so the application in the broader culture of this language to describe something intangible uh, becomes a vehicle for conveying meaning that the words alone cannot communicate. And it's all about the communicative act. Okay, so we've got to remember that we can't just take the words on the page and assess them scientifically. We've got to remember that scripture is an act of communication. So as long as it is conveying the intended meaning, then it's doing its job and it doesn't need to be uh, dictionary perfect, scientifically accurate and all the rest of those kind of things. All right, so when I say that guy's a few sausages short of a barbecue, I don't mean that he is a grill or that his food is missing. If you know that expression, you know that the person in question could be compared to a grill that's missing the most important part, the meat that goes on top. In other words, that person's operating with a deficiency of brains or intelligence. That's how we use idioms in our language. This is a, how you describe something abstract or immaterial. These nouns, fountains and windows that we find in the flood account, they work together with the cosmological terms, the great deep and heaven, to illustrate something spiritual or you know, something intangible, something immaterial. So the physical rainfall has a purpose in the spiritual realm. Ancient people made no distinction between the physical and the spiritual. You know, We talk about them like they're separate things. As far as the audience of Scripture is concerned, it started raining because God was doing something, not just making stuff wet. Like he had work to do and was achieving his ends. As in all biblical texts, the main thrust is always consumed with function. So the verbs are critical to our understanding of this particular uh, passage. The, the fountains of the great deep were broken up and the windows of heaven were opened. Literally, the fountains of the great deep were divided or forcefully split apart and the windows of heaven were moved so as to create an opening. Remember that we're looking at a spiritual phenomenon here. Jesus used this idea when he welcomed Nathanael as his disciple. Check this one out. John 1, 51 in the NIV. He then added, Very truly I tell you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Now, that that is amazing. Again, you have this idea of heaven opening. But the ascending and descending, it, it says the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. What does that make him? Okay, putting our thinking hats on now and going back to 
earlier examples of uh, angels going up and down. We had uh, Jacob's Ladder, right? Or uh, actually, we should be thinking of that in terms of like a ziggurat rather than a, a ladder. You know, we sort of think of those two long planks with the with the treads uh, in between. Uh, when someone says ladder, it's a pretty dodgy translation. But um, really, we're talking about a stepped pyramid, which was probably the form of the Tower of Babel. And uh, you will have seen pictures of those before, right? That's how ancient people envisioned uh, divine beings coming and going from the heavens. Sort of this idea of a cosmic mountain. And it was also talked about in terms of uh, temple and that kind of thing, right? So the place where Jacob saw that vision, uh, he named uh, Bethel, right? Built a uh, an altar there and that was an important cultic site for a long time. And it was all based on this idea that in this place he had seen the abode of God on the earth. So when John says, well, when John quotes Jesus, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Jesus becomes the temple. He becomes the center of cosmic order. He is the place where heaven and earth meet. Now, that's just mind-blowing. So that's the kind of stuff that language can communicate if we're picking it up correctly and, and viewing it through a culturally appropriate lens. So, uh, yeah, just a little insight there from the, from the book and a few extra thoughts I thought I'd uh, throw in there. Anyway, that is all we've got time for on the Answers to Giant Questions podcast for this week. Stick around next week and we will watch in horror as God rips the man in half. All right, we'll see you then. Bye-bye. It's time to wrap up today's episode, but if you want more, don't forget to get yourself a copy of Answers to Giant Questions. We're asking readers to please leave a review of the book on Amazon or Goodreads to help it become more visible in search results. Even if you just give it stars, that'll help. But a full review is certainly really appreciated. Please also leave a review of this podcast wherever you found us so that new listeners can find us here on the show. In the future, we want to be talking about your stories as well, not just our own. So if you have had a particular paranormal or spiritual experience, we want to hear from you. And we're also looking for your testimonies about how you have found the content and the answers to giant questions to be helpful and or useful. Of course, this podcast comes out every week, but you want to make sure you never miss an episode. So if you haven't already subscribed, do that now and you'll get notified when each new episode drops. That's all we have time for today. We'll catch you next time on the Answers to Giant Questions podcast. Thank you for listening to the Answers to Giant Questions podcast, a production of the Raven Creek Social Club. If you like what you heard today, please take a moment to rate or review the show. Music supplied under copyright by Grave Forsaken, graveforsaken.com. You can get the book Answers to Giant Questions by TJ Stedman on Amazon in paperback and Kindle format. Check out the other podcasts at ravencreeksc.com and go to giantanswers.com for more Answers to Giant Questions. Read the blog and catch us on the socials. Don't forget to subscribe and tell your friends about the show. Send us your giant questions and stay tuned to this podcast to get answers. We'll see you next time. Until then, stay safe and God bless. Maha, well, uh, yeah, I, I don't watch the news. Uh, I'm, 
Ignorance is bliss. Yeah. And I'm pretty blissful. <laughs> I'm overflowing with bliss. I, you know, I need a mop. <laughs> That's great.